0: All right, you guys, so this is a Q&A show because I don't really like doing a podcast where I just talk and record myself like that. I need somebody to talk to. So I got Mr. Sue from the Reddit group, and he's going to sit there and listen to me rant and rave, and I guess he's going to ask me some questions to set me up here. Um, but it's your questions, especially Reddit group folk, uh, your questions, and I guess if I had some emails, then I'd answer those too, but I don't this time. Uh, but hey, how you doing there, Mr. Sue? Is that what I'm really supposed I, to call you?
1: Yeah, for now. I'll just let's call uh, you Joe. Keep-
0: hey, Joe. Since Network. since we're just making up names, go ahead.
1: <laughs> All right. Can I call you Frank?
0: Uh-huh. Might as well.
1: Huh? All right. Cool. All right, Frank. Well, yeah. Um. Well, now we got the feds off right back for sure. This is uh. I'm doing pretty good on this nice, shiny, bright uh, Monday morning, afternoon, whatever it is now. And, uh, yeah, I thought this would be a pretty fun thing to do to, uh, get people hyped up for the up and coming book. And, uh, yeah, let's just uh, get cracking with some of these questions here. How, how, how's that sound?
0: That sounds great. Let's do that.
1: Fabuloso. All right. <sighs> so it's that going to be a yay or nay on the thermometer in a crayon color. That's going to represent the progress towards the fundraiser for the book.
0: You know what? That's a good question. I'm going to go with nay until I can maybe figure out something, but I don't really, you know, my webmaster has a lot on his plate and I don't really want to bother him, but I guess I could announce it so far. It's been pretty successful. I've raised a couple of grand. I'm trying to raise 20 grand essentially to stand in for an advance on the coming book and provide me a little bit of a cushion so I can really break away from some of my other work for a while and and really buckle down on it and knock the dang thing out.
1: Good man. I love yeah. the sound of that. Hopefully that uh that Scott Horton week on the Tom Wood show is gonna help out if he was serious about that. But no, dude, two grand in the can already. That's that's kicking. I yeah, love
0: pretty it. Good. Yeah, so that's scotthorton.org slash donate, and there's all kind of kickbacks that you get and everything. And uh Harley from expanddesigns.com slash Scott. Uh, had did a great job of fixing up the uh, the donate page there for the new project and all of that. So if people want to take a look at that, um, I actually someone on Twitter pointed out I did. I started checking my mentions a little bit. I'm not really interacting with anything, but I did check my mentions a little bit because uh, putting out the Will Grigg book and then when Justo Ramondo died, uh, you know, just kind of looking at that, and I saw someone in there say, "Hey, you know." You say you need a title for your book. Well, one thing that I thought was really intriguing about the way you said it all was when you said it doesn't have to be this way. And actually, like, not to wear that out and have it as some stupid gimmick or whatever, but that's the closest thing to a catchphrase as I really have, I think. And I ended my last book with that. And I guess I really do want people to think of it that way, you know, I, because instead, the way I was taught when I was a kid was that, well, you know, History is history. This is how it all happened. And the the page of history turns and the wind of time blows and the democracy decides. And so everything is the way it had to have been or else you wouldn't even be here and all that thing. And yet, no, man, I mean, especially for libertarians, we just, uh, you know, at our core, we it's incompatible with our view of individualism that there's such a thing as the the winds of time blowing, or the forces of history that determine this or that or other things. It's individuals that make decisions that determine this, that, or the other thing, uh, the large ones and the small ones. And that means necessarily that whatever it is, for good or for ill, it doesn't have to be the way it is. And it can be changed if people just have the imagination to think about it another way and especially after 20 years of this i mean everyone who reads my book is going to have to admit that i'm right just like they did on the last one
1: for sure man we can only help i i oh so i was going to say so that how about of, that
0: for a title what do you think of that for the title itself it doesn't have to, be, doesn't this have to be this time way time to end the war on terrorism
1: i love it i was going to suggest that and i also love come home or just come home because I even like commented in the group, like it's really about how you how you make people feel at the end. You can put as much substance and notes and whatever in it, but as long as you actually you know pull out their heartstrings a bit, that's gonna be like a nice you know hook line and, and sinker. But I I love both of them. I think shorter might be best. And plus, right. I mean, if people are more familiar with like Ron Paul saying it. Then, uh, but see, that's the problem I don't know. with it, but too. both agree. And
0: all due respect to him, and I quote him in the last book, of course, saying, just come home. And I paraphrase him, too, out of context, I think. Uh, and, like, borrow that from him as a uh, homage to him or something, you know. But I don't know if I want to exactly take his phrase to use as my title in that way. I don't think that's appropriate, really, to do it exactly like that. Um, I don't know. I'm not really sure that that's the best title, but that is the point. And I'm glad that guy picked up on that, because that is all I'm ever really trying to get people to see, is that it doesn't have to be like this. It never had to be like this. I mean, hell, in my book, I quote the guy who was in charge of the hunt for bin Laden at Toribor, the CIA officer Gary Bernson, saying essentially this whole thing could have been over by New Year's. The whole war could have ended in 2001. None of the rest of this had to happen at all. And that was, with that. he wasn't even just saying, if they had let me go ahead and get bin Laden. He was saying, even all other things being equal, even with bin Laden escaped to Pakistan. Still, he'd send some cops after him now. War's over. War's done. Unnecessary. Nothing to fight. So, if it never had to be this way in the first place, it sure as hell doesn't have to continue this way now.
1: Yeah, Anyways. I wish
0: I get answer that question But yeah, no, go go with Is
1: there a question? also All sorry. your heart, <laughs> as corny as that is Alright, so, real question Crans aside We got neocons go hard after Obama's Iran uh, deal. Indeed, it's shady The plain load of cash Not telling Congress John Kerry, Gareth Porter says It was a good deal But I somehow don't trust that Obama would do This big shady thing Out of the goodness of his heart if the deal is good, why was it shady? What? Why did Obama want it so bad? Does he just hate Israel because of his anti-colonial views, views inherited by his Kenyan father? Why? Why does even Tulsi Gabbard say the deal has flaws? What are these alleged flaws? All
0: right, well, so there's a lot there. I don't. Can you like hold that up?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Let's start. I mean, with
0: essentially, the, the it goes like this. I mean, I. You tell me if I leave any of those unanswered, but I'll try to be brief here. Essentially, we didn't need the deal at all. Iran is already in the deal, the Non-Proliferation treaty, since 1968. and That treaty says that if you don't have nukes, you swear not to ever get them, not to make them, not to buy them. And you have a safeguards agreement. You agree to have a safeguards agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency that gives them the right to verify the, quote, non-diversion of nuclear material to any military means. And that's exactly what Iran has done the whole time. The worst thing you could say about their nuclear program is that they're developing a latent nuclear capability. In other words, they're showing that they can master the fuel cycle. They can enrich uranium. They could enrich it up to weapons grade, although they never have. So... Back off, don't bomb us, because if you bomb us, then we might have to, what, go bury it under a mountain somewhere where you really can't get to it and go ahead and make a nuke. Right now, they're essentially saying they have an unloaded revolver, don't force them to put bullets in it. and so. But that's not good enough to the United States, uh, and really because of Israel. Israel's policy is that if Iran has a nuclear program at all, then that's tantamount to them having a nuclear weapons program. And so even though Lyndon Johnson sat there and let Mao Zedong get nukes without invading China to prevent that, uh, the idea is that America will go to war to prevent Iran from getting a nuke if they ever try to get one, which, as I'm saying, the case is they never have. They've been within their safeguards agreement all along. The CIA and Israeli Mossad, despite Benjamin Netanyahu's propaganda, agree that all research into the possibility of nuclear weapons in Iran ended in 2003. And yet Gareth Porter shows where even that is based on one, the Israeli forged so-called smoking laptop and two, some DIA intercepted uh, purchase orders for quote unquote dual use equipment. That later was verified by the IAEA to actually be for the benign other use in the dual use at universities and other places, just like it claimed in the purchase orders in the first place. They were not straw purchases for a military program. The ring magnet is doing whatever it's doing at the university right there on the shelf where everyone can see it and has nothing to do with nuclear anything. And so even the conclusion... That they even had a research program into nuclear weapons up until 2003, when America got rid of Saddam for them, never even was true. Okay, But there's this giant fake hoax by, really, the Clintons, too, but especially George Bush and then Barack Obama, that said that this is a danger and that this is intolerable, that Iran has this nuclear program. And essentially, TV... Will never say that. Look, they're within the safeguards agreement. Uh, You can read it in the newspaper if you're looking carefully. That they are again verified to not be developing nuclear weapons. Again, even uh, uh, C.I.A. and Mossad agree uh, for more than a decade now that that's the case, uh, at the very least, and or that they were even doing research. They never even claim C.I.A. claims that they never even had an actual program to make a bomb. Uh, correctly, they say that. Um, and so, even though they were within the safeguards agreement with the IAEA, the idea was that that's not good enough. Now, Obama should have just stood on the truth and said, that's ridiculous. It's perfectly good enough. And essentially, to really break it down, to get into it, and I'll get better into it in a minute, but like overall, what did the New Deal do, the JCPOA? major parts of it were that the Iranians agreed to go to add the additional protocol to their safeguards agreement, to agree to a subsidiary arrangement under their safeguards agreement that they already have. In other words, the expansion of the inspection program that already existed to now ridiculous levels of verification, unparalleled in history in any other country. So, um, we'll go through here. What does America do for Iran in the j c p o a the Obama deal? Lift the sanctions and um give them uh, as you said, a pallet full of cash that was their money that was money that Jimmy Carter stole from Iran in nineteen seventy nine during the Iranian revolution and was holding this whole time, and that I forget if it's the world court or the There's another one that's just like it, I forget the name, that decides civil cases between sovereign states, essentially, uh, that had already ruled that America had to give them their money back. And so, I really do hate John Kerry, but you have to hand it to him. I don't care who you are, you have to hand it to him that that's all they get. We lift some sanctions, we see some aggression and strangulation, strangulation of their economy, And we give them back a few billion dollars, a few tens of billions of dollars, I guess, of their own money that we had to give them back anyway, that America had stolen from them. Huh?
1: I have a quick question on the whole money thing. That was like ransom because they had our prisoners back in, like, when the revolution first kicked off. Can you do some background on that, real quick?
0: Oh, well, on the whole Iranian revolution, real quick? Yeah. So. In 1953, America overthrew the democratically elected prime minister, Mossadegh, and reinstalled the Shah Reza Pahlavi, the monarch, who was essentially a right-wing fascist pseudo-king. And, uh, you know, the Shah is like the Caesar, right? Um, and he was deposed in 1979, uh, in, in February of 1979. In a giant revolution, a nationwide revolution and uprising against him, which was led, um, not entirely, but as the most powerful faction, were the Shiite religious authorities. And you might wonder right, how because co- he
1: was running like on on Westernism. He was uh, he, he was secular and all that, and basically the Iranians that were living there already. Um, basically wanted more religion in their life so that's kind of why they overthrew him
0: yeah no he was a fascist dictator is why they overthrew him the fact that he was secular I'm sure you know was part of the argument by the religious authorities but was that the reason that the whole country rose up to overthrow him no it was because he was a tyrant he was a sock puppet dictator fascist thug imposed on them by the british and the americans from outside so think about if they had installed if the iranians had installed a monarch or some shiite ayatollah in power in your state uh it wouldn't necessarily be just his sect that you object to or his lack of one you know what i mean that would be maybe part of it um you see okay. what I, mean. I was just
1: playing like Devil's Advocate, sort yeah. of, because um, the, like that. I guess the US won the propaganda campaign of Iran being the shopping mall of the Middle East. So I thought that's kind of like why their revolution happened because it just wasn't like non secular enough for them. But uh, who, well, like, like I say, fact- it was. It was. <laughs> right.
0: It was not just the Shiites that rose up to overthrow the government. It was virtually the entire society that rose up to right. overthrow him. The Shiite Ayatollahs were the ones who took power and consolidated their authority as leaders of the new so-called Islamic Republic. And, you know, the the Persian Shiites, I believe, are a solid 55 or 60% of the population of the country. Um, uh, something like that. They're a majority, but they're not a super majority, a majority I don't believe. Um, but they're the ones in, in power. But anyway, um, so the thing of it is that... Uh, what really happened was in November, months late, well, first of all, the CIA and the State Department told Jimmy Carter to let the Ayatollah Khomeini leave France and go home to Iran to lead the revolution. And so that was why the French let him on the plane and let him go home from exile was because America told him to. And the reason the CIA told Carter that was they said, we know this guy. He's OK. He helped us overthrow Mossadegh back in 1953, so it'll be fine, but then what happened was, well, first of all, it wasn't fine immediately after the revolution, but then in November, Um, everything went to hell, because David Rockefeller convinced Zbigniew Brzezinski to convince Jimmy Carter to let the Shah into the United States for medical treatment. He was dying of cancer. and That caused the massive riot and the hostage crisis at the embassy, where CIA and State Department people were taken hostage and then were held for a year and a half. And, of course, another part of that story, of course, is the rise of the Reaganites and how pro-Reagan factions in the CIA and and loyal to George H.W. Bush rigged what's called the October Surprise, where they negotiated with the Iranians to hold the hostages longer to hurt Carter and help Reagan win. And then later, they were released on the day Reagan was inaugurated, and he was made to look like the big hero when he was the big villain who had kept those people imprisoned even longer for his public relations stunt. And then that secret relationship with the Iranians ended up growing into the Iranian uh, arms for hostages Iran-Contra scandal later on in the Reagan administration, where they were backing Saddam Hussein against Iran, but they also ended up backing iran Against Saddam Hussein as well. So um, now, so this is why the giant enmity between the United States and Iran since '79. Although it's a long, complicated history since then, and we've had plenty of chances to um, fix things since then, um, which you know our various leaders have refused to uh, to really follow up on. But so To bring us back to the nuclear deal, all America did in the deal was not give them pallets full of cash out of your pocket, the way Donald Trump has absolutely lied and portrayed it over and over again, and the entire right wing with him. It was their own money. That was Kerry's side of the deal. We'll let you have your own money that we stole from you back if you do all these things for us. And their answer was, okay. So... Yeah, you diverted me before I got to explain why to give credit to John Kerry. I hope people made it all the way through that side thing about 79, because I hate John Kerry. I don't want anybody to think I like John Kerry, but I'm just saying, any deal you ever heard, where I come to your garage sale, and I steal the bank off your table, and then I buy up all your lamps and chairs with the money I just stole from you, and then claim that you're the one getting over on me? Now this is the worst deal ever for me get the hell out of here okay these right wingers first of all aren't acquainted with the truth so they could hardly be the ones to explain it to you right because they don't know what they they don't need to know details all they need to know is their story their narrative about oh boohoo the anti-semitic Muslim anti-colonialist I love that Barack Obama like he's not just Bill Clinton in blackface give me a freaking break these people with their silly little Narratives. Why not go full bore with, he's the Antichrist, because it says in the Bible, if America has a black president with a funny name, that means that he's literally the devil come back to life. If you're going to be completely stupid about all of this and not even try to read the damn deal or know the first thing about it... Hey, you know what? Barack Obama and the Ayatollah are in league with Satan to kill all the poor little innocent Israelis there. You win. Fine. Go about your day. You won. Anyway, for everybody else, what Iran has to do in the deal is, first of all, completely limit their program. So they shut down the Fordo and the Com facility, well, uh, the Fordo slash Com facility, both names for the same thing, um, and turn it into a research facility only. So they're not producing enriched uranium there at all. And then at the Natanz facility, they turned off two-thirds of their centrifuges, went from 30,000 down to 10,000 spinning centrifuges in their cascade. And they agreed to whole new limits on the amount of enriched uranium, which is still only 3.6%, has to be you know, high 80s or really above 90% uranium-235 to be weapons-grade. And They agreed to restrict the amount that they would ever have of even this low-enriched uranium for their electricity program to essentially all they need on a monthly basis, and not allow a stockpile to grow that could ever be feared to be enriched to a higher grade to be used for a weapon later. So, they're exporting out all their enriched uranium. I forget if it's to France or Russia who's doing the transformation into the nuclear fuel rods and then sending them back. And then they're simply being used up in their nuclear reactors. And then, so speaking of nuclear reactors, they poured concrete into the Iraq reactor, deactivating it permanently for all time. I think it never was up and running. They just made it completely inoperable. It'll be a museum piece maybe if they don't just bulldoze the thing. Um, and then the Boucher reactor is Jesus Christ. The um, Boucher reactor is a heavy water reactor and um, it does possibly produce uh, weapons grade uh, plutonium. However, the deal is with the Russians is that they will come and they will harvest all of the plutonium out of there and take it home. And by the way, that plutonium is produced with heavy impurities that make it impossible to use as a weapon unless you have a purification facility uh, to refine that plutonium, which they do not even have in the first place. And under the deal, the Russians take, uh, you know, every so often go in there and harvest out all the waste and take it back to Russia where it's safe and where the uh, hey they already got thousands of H bombs. Don't worry about them. Uh, and Keep it out of the hands of the Iranians. So their uranium path to the bomb and their plutonium path to the bomb are both completely blocked. At the same time, they expanded inspections to all of their nuclear facilities more than before, or it already was anywhere where nuclear materials is actually introduced to any machine. But now it's where any nuclear material is stored the mines, the centrifuge factory where they make the centrifuges, where there's no nuclear material of any kind around, and they've expanded the IAEA's mandate to inspect uh, to the nth degree. Now, Trump says, oh, no, because we can't go to military bases. Well, that's just a lie. I mean, what he's doing there is he's pretending that oh, we can't just walk right into any military base in Iran whenever we feel like it without notice is the same thing as we can't go there at all. But that's just not true. And all you have to do is read the deal, and there's a mechanism to inspect even their military bases. Imagine America bending over for that and letting these people... Uh, Letting the United Nations force us to open up our military bases to their inspection. Good luck getting past our militia before you even get to the gates of the base. You try that around here. But anyway, um, they can go right into their military bases. All they have to do is show probable cause. In fact, not even that. Just a reasonable suspicion. And the reasonable suspicion only has to satisfy America's closest allies, France, Germany, and Britain. And if France, Germany, and Britain agree with America that, yes, hey, there's a reason to be suspicious that something is going on at a military base that we need to look at, then even if Iran, Russia, and China disagree, they are outvoted. And there is no UN Security Council veto here. This is the JCPOA committee. And so, all America has to do is convince our closest allies in the world, to agree with us that there's a reason to look at their base, and then they have to let us in. And if they don't, then all of the sanctions, quote-unquote, snap back. If they resist, then that means that the United Nations sanctions that apply to Russia and China, too, that apply to the whole world, the crippling sanctions of the Obama era, not just like Trump is doing enforced by America and against all of these other countries but under world law of UN Security Council resolution those sanctions all snap back into place uh, as punishment if Iran resists okay so we gave them nothing except a little bit of sanctions relief and their own money back they way completely scaled back their program and expanded inspections in return including, yes, even their military bases. And so what did I leave off the list of all those questions there? Did I I hit everything? Go back.
1: Yeah, that was pretty much it. Uh, I think the main thing is like, what flaws does Tulsi Gabbard see in the deal?
0: I have no idea, but she's wrong. I know Rand Paul had to lie. The Ayatollah said... Listen, this Iran deal, this this JCPOA, it doesn't prevent us from making nuclear weapons because we weren't making nuclear weapons anyway. And then Rand Paul came out and said, oh my God, what a terrible deal. The Ayatollah himself says that the deal doesn't prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. Just outright lying about what the Ayatollah meant by that. When in fact, of course, it does. If you read the thing, and Rand Paul knows how to read, if you read the thing, it absolutely does prevent them. Other than in the most absolute, um, you know, deconstructionist scent, uh, sense that you can't entirely ever. Disprove that something isn't true. <laughs> you know, um, there could be a mountain somewhere with a secret program under it that no one in the history of the world has ever had the slightest bit of evidence of, uh-huh. I guess, within the realm of magic and theory. But there is no reason to believe that that is true at all. Everything they got is known, is monitored, is inspected, is locked down. And there's no threat. Simple as that. And everybody who says otherwise is a liar. And the fact that even in the question, Oh, is it because Obama hates Israel so much? Man, you know what? You should hate Israel so much for filling your head with so much nonsense. For 20 years they told you Iran was making nukes. Did it ever occur to you that they might have a couple of bombs by now? If that were true... It was never true. They were manipulating you like you're a stupid, helpless child and they're an adult telling you things to believe that you cannot figure out aren't true by yourself. Shame on you for letting liars manipulate you. Just read this stupid deal. If I didn't answer one question, it's, why did Obama even do this? And the answer is, just to get the Israelis to shut the hell up. Just to get the war party, a.k.a. Israel's fifth column inside the United States, to shut the hell up about their fake, dishonest pretension that Iran's civilian, safeguarded nuclear program was a weapons threat at all. As I said... Everyone just acted like the NPT didn't exist. Everybody just acted like the safeguards agreement and the regular inspections was some other dimension, some other time and place, no relevance to our story that these guys are making nukes and must be stopped. So, what Obama did was he came and said, I'll go ahead and do a new double extra super deal with Iran that cannot be denied. And now look at the reality. Who hates the JCPOA the most? It's It's all of Barack Obama's enemies. And it's Israel's highest partisans, like um, uh, John Bolton, who wants a war. In fact, I have a clip here of Bolton in 2007, when he worked for, or right after he stopped working for George W. Bush, explaining that he was trying to provoke Iran to leave the nuclear deal, the um, non-proliferation treaty. Back then. Which he said uh, would give the advantage to them. So, in fact, I think this is it right here. Let me see. Mohammad yeah, Bagheri right. is an apologist for Iran. He has taken positions in flat violation. No, that's
1: of... not it. Um, let me yeah, turn now it. to the question of uh, the energy agency. They have not rejected the sanctions resolution. They have not done anything more dramatic, such as withdrawing from the non-proliferation treaty or uh, throwing out inspectors of the International Atomic Energy Agency, which uh, I actually hope they would do, that, uh, that that kind of reaction would uh, produce a counter-reaction, actually would, uh, would be more beneficial to us.
0: There you go. That's John Bolton talking to the American Israel Public Affairs Committee and saying, I was trying to provoke a counter-reaction by them that they would withdraw from the non-proliferation treaty, that they would kick the IAEA inspectors out of the country, which would create a worse counter-reaction against them for war in the United States, for harsher sanctions and position by American allies in Europe, etc. And so, there you go. Sabotaging the Jesus. deal. There's, a, there's an article today at antiwar.com uh, by the great Jason Ditz. And it says, Rouhani, that's the president of Iran, offers U.S.-Iran talks for sanctions relief. So here the Iranians have been saying, no talks. We can't take the Trump people seriously. We can't deal with them, and so we're just going to wait them out or do our best. But here they're saying, okay, fine. If you give us a little bit of sanctions relief, then we'll meet with you. Okay? And then So what does Mike Pompeo say? He goes, no, the last time we had a deal like that, it led to the nuclear deal which was bad. But so, what he's saying is, as uh, Jason Ditz puts it here, Pompeo's position is in keeping with his push to drive Trump toward a war with Iran. But it also shoots a hole in the idea that the U.S. really wants a diplomatic engagement, as his objection to Rouhani's proposal is the very idea that the talks might happen and lead to a deal, which he considers a bad result. So, They want to talk. He claimed that they all claimed that they were renewing all the sanctions. The US has withdrawn from the deal now under Donald Trump and reinstituted all these sanctions. And the idea is to force them to the table to negotiate to get a better deal. Now Rouhani comes crawling and says, okay, let's talk. Give us a little bit of sanctions relief and we'll talk. And Pompeo says no way. And what's his justification? Not that lifting sanctions would be a reward to them or some kind of garbage, you know, Dick Cheney 2002 nonsense in the first place, but not even that. But just that, no, we're afraid that talks might lead to a deal. And we don't want a deal. There are some hawks who want war with Iran, and they see a deal like the NPT and the JCPOA as an obstacle to war. That's the reason that Obama passed the deal, was to stop the war, and that's the reason these people hate it, is because it's in their way. After all, isn't it the case that they had to stop pretending that Iran is making nukes right now, as long as everybody's in the deal? They couldn't really get away with that anymore. The NPT doesn't exist for some reason? Well, the JCPOA does. The Obama deal does. And it's in the headlines constantly that the IAEA again confirms that the Iranians are abiding by the deal in every way. It's
1: 15 consecutive times, right? Something crazy like that?
0: Oh, since the JCPOA, I'm not certain. But it's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times all along. The agency continues to verify the non-diversion of nuclear material in Iran to any military or other special purpose. This is like having an ATF agent living at your gun shop. And I don't mean in the gun walker sense where they helped the CIA arm up the Sinhaloa cartel. That's not what I mean. I mean like if you had a gun shop and there was an ATF agent who had an office at your gun shop, making sure you were within the letter of the law on every damn rifle sale, it'd be pretty hard for people to then, for the Justice Department to then come in and say you're running machine guns. If you got a treasury agent sitting right there breathing down your neck, is
1: that clear? Yeah, Crystal. No, I think it's kind of funny because it's true that Iran actually has expanded their nuclear production. But, I mean, it seems like the U.S. has deliberately made that happen just to come up with an excuse. Because if you can't export whatever energy you have – yeah, it's kind of build up, but I feel like that's just like by U.S. design. Is that right?
0: Yeah. I mean, of course, they're saying, oh, no, look, they're above the limits of the deal. But they're the ones putting sanctions on anyone who cooperates with them for exporting their material to keep themselves under the limits. And the whole thing is a sham. And then, yes, the Iranians have, from my point of view, made something of a mistake by... Increasing what? Not up to weapons grade purity. They just, they increase up to like 4% something. It's still electricity grade. Make their nuclear reactor run a little bit hotter, but nothing near weapons grade at all. They're just. Well, now
1: they're at 5%. So now it's the end of the world.
0: Yeah. Which just goes to show. I mean, what's going on here is they're ratcheting up the pressure on their side because America has declared total financial war against them. This is a country that's never attacked us. You know, you, it's true that in 1983 they backed the Amal militia that attacked American Marines in Beirut, but then that day Ronald Reagan said, "What the hell was I thinking, having those Marines there in the first place?" and pulled them out again. And they were combatants. You know, I'm not saying that's okay. They were asleep at the time. It's a sad event and whatever. But you got to go all the way back then to find an attack. Then, there's a whole bunch of lies about how they were responsible for the insurgency in Iraq. The you know, truth of the matter is that, of the 4,500 Americans who died in that war, 4,000 of them were killed by the Sunni-based insurgency in the war that America was fighting on behalf of the Shiite alliance. 500 were killed by Shiite fighters, but those Shiite fighters fought for Sadr. He was the least Iranian tied of the Shiite factions. Dawa and Skiri, the most Iranian tide, were the ones that America favored the most. And so, and then they just made up this ridiculous lie that any time a Shiite set off a bomb, that bomb came from Iran. But that's not true. And it's been debunked 100 times back in 2007. And it was debunked again this last week by the great Gareth Porter, and including on my radio show in LA on uh, Sunday, which will be up on my website, ScottHorton.org, real soon here. That's just not true, and they have to make up these lies in order to claim, as Pompeo now does, say that Iran killed 600 Americans in Iraq. That's not true, and that argument didn't fly in 2007, and that's why George Bush did not approve Dick Cheney's proposal for strikes inside Iran in 2007. And if it wasn't good enough for Bush at Cheney's request then, then sure as hell in a good enough excuse. To pretend that this is makes Iran an enemy of the United States now, as I document and explain on my show constantly and repeatedly, America has been responsible for every one of Iran's advances in power and influence in the region in this century, and so they have no, they are in no position whatsoever to complain. And none of it is really at our expense at all. Uh, none of it has anything to do with really hurting the United States. It only just angers our allies. But if it's all George Bush and Barack Obama's fault, then what right does Donald Trump have to complain about Iranian power? And in fact, you know, like it or not, America fought Iraq War III arm in arm in alliance with those very same Shiite militias against the Islamic State. In Western Iraqi Sunni, stand from 2014 through 2017, Barack Obama and Donald Trump's war to destroy the Islamic State was fought again in alliance with Iran, against a group that America had backed to try to limit the power of Iran in the first place, but it just blew up out of proportion, and then thus had to be destroyed itself. The whole thing's crazy, man. And anybody who wants to... You know, show up in the middle of that and say, well, I heard that the Israelis said that the Iranians are trying to make a nuke and kill everyone who never did anything is just, I, I don't know. I don't mean to be too cruel about that, but for God's sake, man, it's 2019 and a half right now. People should have been able to figure out the truth of some of this stuff. Again, if Iran was making nukes for 25 years straight, wouldn't they have at least one or two? People need to be explained that by me. People can't think of that themselves. Like, hey, maybe the Israelis have been jerking my chain all this time, you know, to plagiarize Dave Smith. Oh, I don't know. That doesn't sound like them. They wouldn't do that.
1: Yeah. Um, when it comes to Iraq, it's just like they're they're just nominally Shia in charge there right now. I mean, it's not like well, from Iran, Baghdad down to Basra.
0: In the East and the South, I mean, the West, but, they nominally are the government yeah. of the whole country. But the reason that ISIS was able to take over all of Western Iraq was because the, the Shiite groups that America and Iran worked together to put in power in Iraq War II, they really didn't want to rule Western Iraq. Uh, they figured, well, we have the East and the South and the capital city, thanks to George W. Bush helping with the ethnic sectarian cleansing campaign there. And so all the Sunnis out in Fallujah and Ramadi and Mosul, screw them. And not so much Mo- uh, Ramadi, they had a little bit of a presence in Ramadi. But, you know, a year before Mosul fell, which was in June of 2014, Patrick Coburn was on my show saying that he went to Mosul, and there were no Shiite Iraqi army fighters around anywhere. And he went and found them, and they were way back behind Shiite lines. And they explained to him that they were like on Fort Apache out there. My words, not theirs. But essentially, they were out there occupying foreign land, foreign territory, Western Iraqi Sunniistan, and that their supply lines back to safe Iraqi shia were too thin and unreliable. And they felt like they did not have... You know, essential force protection. And so, they were a wall. In other words, there was no Iraqi government presence, no, no real Iraqi army presence in Mosul, or significant portions of it were just gone. And then, so, a year later, when ISIS rolled in, the ones that were left turned tail and ran. Because uh, they knew that they didn't really have the support, because the government of Baghdad wasn't committed... To quote unquote protecting that is dominating that part of Iraq, they had theirs, and let the Sunnis go burn in the sun was Maliki's strategy. And so when when Barack Obama and John Brennan and Hillary Clinton and Leon Panetta and David Petraeus started uh, committing high treason and backing Al Qaeda in Iraq in Syria, beginning in 2011, which ended up you know leading to the rise of the the rebirth of Al Qaeda in Iraq in the form of this massive group, and allied with, of course, Saudi and Qatar and Turkey and Israel all helped support uh, financially and with weapons, to the various jihadi groups over there, all of which helped to lead to the rise of the Islamic State, as the fighters and the guns and the money are all very fungible inside those movements. Mythical moderates fighting, quote-unquote, side-by-side with actual al-Qaeda guys, firing American tow missiles at Syrian tanks. I mean, come on. This is what created the rise of the Islamic State, and why did they do it? As Barack Obama told Jeffrey Goldberg, just to help bring Iran down a peg. It's in um, the the article is as president, I don't bluff, and you know what it is? It's Obama telling Jeffrey Goldberg, who is like head Likud commissar in American media, that Jeffrey Goldberg, please tell the American Zionist movement that you trust me, that I really mean it when I say, as president, I don't bluff, even if it comes to a war, I will never let Iran get nuclear weapons. All these right-wingers are saying, I'm trying to help Iran get nuclear weapons. Jeffrey Goldberg, you know that's not true. I'm trying to get this deal through this so that we don't have to have a war at all. And that part is true, and that's his motive for giving the interview to Goldberg in the first place. Was Would you please tell them for me? kind of thing. But in the interview, Goldberg says, hey, if we did a regime change against Assad in Syria, that would help bring Iran down a peg, don't you think, Mr. President? And Obama says, that's right, Jeffrey Goldberg, that's exactly what we're doing. And Goldberg says, well, geez, can you tell us more about your efforts doing that? And Obama essentially says, oh, if I I told you I'd have to kill you, he says, I'm sorry, Jeffrey Goldberg, your clearance isn't high enough for me to tell you what we're doing there. In other words, yes, he's authorized the CIA to finance a bunch of terrorists and to work with our allies to finance a bunch of terrorists, a bunch of bin Ladenite head chopper suicide bombers to try to take out Assad because he's friends with Iran. And that's what Israel wants. Simple as that.
1: So how far do you think the uh, the new payment system in in STEX is gonna go? Like do you know anything? more about that other than what you talked with uh, Mike Mahirny about?
0: Well, um, I mean, I think Iran is already kicked out of SWIFT. Um, as far as I know, uh, they're not allowed to participate that in that at all. Now, the Europeans, because Trump is so bad at politics, where Obama really did everything he could to get the Europeans on board for his sanctions regime... Trump just threatened them. Trump just said, "I'm I'm pulling out of the deal. I demand that you all pull out of the deal too. And even if you don't, I'm going to sanction any European company that acts as though the deal is still valid and tries to trade with Iran." So, the Iranians, I mean the Europeans, said, "Well, we're going to try to set up a special purpose vehicle, sort of a legal technicality, to somehow allow trade to go through." But as far as I understand, that has not really been successful so far, and it's over America's dead body, which I think means that they'll back down before they really do it. I don't think France and Germany are willing to defy America that badly. Maybe they will, but even then I don't think it'd be enough. Now recently the French said that they would or the Iranians said that they would talk to America with the French as a middleman. And then as I as I mentioned in this story about Pompeo shooting the idea down, Rouhani went ahead, the president went ahead and said he's willing to have some talks with America right now in exchange for some sanctions relief. And if we got their head in a vice like Joe Pesci, you know what? We could crank that back a tiny bit for some talks, you know what I mean? Unless the point is just to murder them, then it makes sense to go ahead and back off a little bit and have some talks. We're in the position of strength. They never did anything to us. We're the aggressor here. We have every reason in the world to back off. You know, If it was up to me, I would completely drop every bit of sanctions, pull every ship out of the Gulf, and tell the Iranians good luck, and I'd really appreciate it if you would stay inside the Non-Proliferation Treaty. But I don't even have any use for the JCPOA. I don't give a damn. And you know what? Speaking of Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic, Ehud Barak, who was at the time defense minister, and Benjamin Netanyahu, who at the time was prime minister, still is. They both told Jeffrey Goldberg that even if Iran did get nuclear weapons, they are not afraid that Iran would try to use one on Israel. They don't believe their own lie about that. They told that to Jeffrey Goldberg. You can read it yourself in The Atlantic. You know what they said? They said, we're afraid that if Iran had nuclear weapons, that that would limit our freedom of action elsewhere in the Middle East. Their own words. Their ability to be aggressive against neighboring states, like, say, if they wanted to start a war against Hezbollah, maybe they would have to be reluctant if they knew that Hezbollah's ally, Iran, had a nuke back in Persia. And then the other, I love this, this is the excuse for America's foreign policy being completely hell-bent around this issue, is that, as Ehud Barak puts it, they're afraid there could be a brain drain of talented Israelis to the United States if there was a credible threat of Iran holding a nuclear bomb. And so that is the supposed existential threat to Israel, that Israeli grad students in the United States might not come home. And that's why, according to the Israeli defense minister and prime minister, the defense minister then who's running against the prime minister now, Uh, who's still the sitting Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu and Ehud Barak. These two, that's their excuse for all of this. You know what, Danielle Pletka, from the American Enterprise Institute, and very powerful and influential neoconservative from uh, Iraq War II days, she said, you know, the real concern is that they would not use the bomb, and that that would then be taken as proof that they, in fact, are a responsible power and can be dealt with as a regular nation-state, just like other nation-states, and we cannot allow that to happen. So, in other words, they have this narrative that Iran is such a destructive force, but if they were sitting there holding a nuke and never used it, then that would prove that their narrative is not true, and that would be detrimental to their untrue narrative.
1: They want and, successfully we're supposed to prove put up a with negative. this. Huh? I said they would have successfully proven a negative for once.
0: Uh, the whole thing is completely crazy, man. Alright, more questions? Wait, did I miss anything on Iran there? You got that whole list of questions there. Did I miss anything?
1: Let me double check. I think the last thing, which is the whole Tulsi thing. If you wanna like just speak on, you know, how she's not like a total dove. If you have anything about that?
0: She she gave a speech to the Christians United for Israel. I think she's gotten a little bit better on some of these issues, but she takes a pretty right-wing hawk position on some of these things. I mean, if you listen to her closely, and I don't want to just talk bad about her all the time. She's the best one in the race by far. But what she says is essentially, to paraphrase her, she says what I just said, that Barack Obama and John Brennan were essentially committing treason in Syria. They were backing al-Qaeda in Iraq— In Syria. In other words, the worst part of the Sunni-based insurgency from Iraq War II, the Sunni-based insurgency that killed 4,000 out of the 4,500 Americans who died over there, they backed those guys as long as they were on the Syrian side of the line. In fact, me and Jason Ditz used to joke on the show in real time as this was all playing out, that America still, even as they were pulling troops out, they still had the CIA drone war going on inside Iraq, and that they were hitting... These jihadists close to the Syrian border. And Jason Ditz from news.antiwar.com, we were joking that, see, we're chasing the jihadists from Iraq into Syria, where they're the mythical moderates. They're the good guys in Syria. They're still the bad guys in Iraq. They're the good guys in Syria. So, that's all true. Just as I just said, you know, the whole thing about, this is a great way to take Iran down a peg, is to back al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria, agree Goldberg and Obama. Okay, that's what an anti-Semite, anti-Israeli type uh, Barack Obama is. He was doing this for them in great part Um, because they hate Iran more. Never mind who knocked your towers down, essentially. So Tulsi Gabbard, she was in Iraq War II. She knows the difference between Muqtad al-Sadr on one side and the Sunni insurgency on the other. And you can't just pull the wool over her eyes and make her not understand That, oh my God, Barack Obama is backing al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria. This is treason. And it's not because he's a secret Muslim anti-Semite. It's because he's George Bush, the Zionist. He's doing this because that's what Saudi and Turkey and Qatar and Israel wanted. And said that they wanted. And so, that was why he was doing it. Well, Gabbard says no dice. These are the guys who killed the guys in my war I was in, so no way. However, that doesn't make her good on every other thing. In reality, what Barack Obama and, in fact, what the entire centrist consensus, John McCain had a gun to his head the whole time, you know, it was the entire Republican-Democrat leadership consensus to do this all along. Um, uh, it wasn't just some fringe thing, but... In the scheme of things, overall, it was absolutely an insane policy, and essentially Well, I don't want to say a diversion from the government's true mission over there. How about a diversion from the government's mandate over there, which is to fight terrorism? Not my mandate, but from the American people, to fight the terrorists who attacked us. Instead, they're so far off their mission, they're lying with the enemy that attacked us, Against their strategic rival in the region that never did anything to us. So, um, again, sorry, I'm talking in circles there. Point being, Gabbard sees this and says, that's crazy. I'm totally against that, as against that as as could be, and that's perfect. But then she says that, but the war against Al-Qaeda, the war against ISIS, those wars must be waged eternally. And not only that, she says that. It's all motivated by religion. It's not blowback because of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton. It's not blowback because of George Bush Jr. and Barack Obama. What it is, is it's radical Islam makes them hate goodness, makes them hate people from the middle part of North America, makes them want to kill us, and so we have to defend ourselves from them. Now they they do deliberately target civilians, They're bastards, Just because America's the Empire doesn't make al-Qaeda the rebel alliance, okay? Um, they are terrorists, and they are murderers and war criminals, essentially. And yet, um, they are motivated by American foreign policy, of dominance in their part of the world. If you know, look at what we do to them under the excuse of one tower and two towers and three thousand people killed, Uh, We waged this entire war. Imagine how we would react if literally the Middle Eastern caliphate superpower dominated North America in every way, owned all of our sock puppet leaders and enforced tyranny over us. Think how much we'd hate them then. Think how much we'd bomb them eventually, one way or the other, if that was the case. That is what happened here. Just put the shoe on the other foot. The reality is, America has a policy of dominance in the Middle East that far predates the terrorists' war against us, or our war in the name of fighting them. That's the reality that she refuses to acknowledge. And I don't know if she doesn't know that, or if she's just afraid to go that far and put it that way, or exactly what it is. But it's not just that. I might even kind of let that slide a little bit, I don't know, a little something, I don't know. I'd still say something. But... Then she gets into this Rand Paulian hyperbole that I have nothing but contempt for, where she says this, dude. She goes, look, you still have some Al-Qaeda in Syria. There's still some ISIS guys in Western Iraq, and there's Al-Qaeda in Yemen, and there's Al-Shabaab. There are hundreds of these groups all across North Africa and the Middle East and da-da-da-da. Well, you know what? That's a lie. That couldn't be further from the truth. She just named four, all of whom are direct beneficiaries of America's policies on their behalf in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia. She could have added Libya too. But we're talking about now in the entire region a number of groups that you can count on one hand. All of a sudden, she turns that into hundreds. Oh, I meant to say this earlier. When Mike Pompeo lied and claimed Iran killed 600 Americans in Iraq War II, Donald Trump turned around and claimed 2,000. Iran killed 2,000. In other words, almost half of the Americans in Iraq War II were killed by the Shiite side, claims Donald Trump, even though that's the side the whole war was fought for. Mike Pompeo says 600. That doesn't sound big enough. Let's make it bigger. Donald Trump claims. And then here's Tulsi Gabbard pulling the same stunt. I can name five legit bin Ladenite groups who are dangerous in the world. And then my next sentence is, there are hundreds of these groups and we must fight them all until they are all completely defeated and extinguished off the face of the earth, which is just crazy and counterproductive. And everybody who's honest about that knows that. That the war, never mind the wars against the secular dictators, and and all of the bait-and-switch, and all the stuff that she's against. But just look at the wars against Al-Qaeda in Pakistan, for example. Well, killed tens of thousands of civilians who had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda, led to a whole gigantic war between the Pakistani government and the Tariqi Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, that was inconclusive. It didn't lead to a significant uh, diminution of their powers, I would say. Um, Uh, even after tens of thousands of people were killed. And then guess what? A bunch of Pakistani Taliban refugees fled to Afghanistan for safe haven, where they later renamed themselves ISIS and pledged loyalty to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and their goals and have become the excuse for America to stay in Afghanistan longer now, a war that Tulsi Gabbard doesn't support. But the excuse for that war to continue is the direct result of the war against, okay, to the CIA drone war against targeting, legitimately targeting the original Arab friends of Osama bin Laden hiding among the Tariqi Taliban in Pakistan. And all it did was lead to far worse consequences and at the cost again of tens of thousands of civilians' lives. Not just from the drones, you understand, but from the Pakistani government's war in alliance with the US against the Tariqi Taliban in general during that same time frame, early Obama years. 2009, 10, 11. Okay. Absolute catastrophe. And then the other only, and I'm sorry, there really are only two. Okay. The only actual two wars that weren't a bait and switch against an Iranian friend or a secular dictator was in Yemen, starting with Obama in 2009 against Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who had blown up the coal and who, after Obama started bombing them, tried to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009 with the underpants bomb. And they also did the Charlie Hebdo and one of the other, I think the Eagles of Death Metal attack in France were both by them. And they also did a a printer cartridge plot to try to blow up a plane that failed. Uh, So a real terrorist group. And Obama bombed them and bombed them and all he did was grow them. It's like pouring water on weeds. And the more innocent people he killed, the more people joined the Al-Qaeda-led resistance there. One of the first major strikes they did in December 2009 against a couple of Al-Qaeda suspects, who they correctly identified as a couple of Al-Qaeda guys, well, they bombed them when they were at a meeting with a village elder who was a tribal chief who was telling them, you better get the hell out of my town or my guys are going to kill all of your guys. That was the purpose of the meeting was the local tribal chief was reading these guys the riot act and telling them that they better stay the hell away and then a drone flies by and bombs and kills him and them and a bunch of innocent civilians nearby as well 20 something women and children were killed and then this led to Al Qaeda seizing control of that entire town and spread from there and of course In order to be allowed to wage that drone war, Obama sent all his guns and money that he wanted up to the dictator, Saleh, as his bribe. Well, Saleh used all that guns and money to ally with Al-Qaeda and with Al-Qaeda's friends, the uh, Islam movement, the Muslim Brotherhood, and then used them to attack the Houthis in the north. And he attacked them over and over again. And every time he did, he lost. And the Houthis got more and more powerful until eventually they came in 2011 and 12 during the Arab Spring and succeeded in throwing him out of power. And then, when his successor attacked them again, they drove him out of power and took over the country. And after that, America and Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Britain and our other allies launched a war of genocide against the people. The civilian population of Yemen, in order to try to get them to overthrow the Houthis for us, who were that was Obama did it all within one presidency. Uh, Launched a war of genocide to try to reverse the direct consequences of his previous policy, and so those are your wars. That's when they're not doing a bait and switch and attacking Saddam or Gaddafi or Assad. That's when they're actually focusing on Al Qaeda guys. Those are the consequences. So, Tulsi Gabbard ought to be mad enough to say, forget this. We don't have to sit here and pretend to believe a bunch of nonsense, okay? What, Dick Cheney's going to make fun of you or something? I mean, this is crazy. It's 2019. We're going to sit here and pretend that this is still a thing that's legit at all? And the thing is, too, is it's the parable of Ron and Rand. Can't you see? You gotta go ahead and just be brave and tell the truth. You try to come at it with this sort of coy, kind of half-assed little bit of an argument. Sometimes when you don't drop it, you get nowhere. You get people like me, who's anti-war and dying for an anti-war candidate, who I would never vote, probably, but I might support a Democrat and do a lot to boost a Democrat if I really, really believe that they really were going to be good on this. But you give me a bunch of Rand Paul, sort of half-assed measures, then I'm going to be disappointed. And, and, you know, and I can already see it's not just me, it's actual lefties who would support her, who are really deflated by her hedging. Which is, you know, and the thing is about it is, if you don't pay close attention, you might not notice that she hedges all the time. You might just think, yeah, she's a great anti-war candidate, but like, hey, half the time she's hawking it up. In fact, she says, when it comes to wars for terrorism, I'm against it. But when it comes to wars against terrorism, you bet I'm a hawk. So, um, that ought to be pretty blatant, but she ought to also just shut it down. It's not going to get her anywhere with anyone. She's going to be anti-war. She ought to go ahead and get it right. And, and especially because the time has gone on, the new poll just came out, where the American people and all the veterans are at the same number, where it's 65% and better think that the whole terror war should have never happened. That's what the troops say, too, and she's a troop. She was stationed at Ballot Air Base in the Sunni Triangle. She wasn't a combat veteran, literally, but she was on a base where dudes were dying. I mean, she was in that war. And, I mean, if, if, if Hawkeye and Radar were in the war, then she was in the war. And so she has every ability to say, and she does all the time, say, I was in the war, so shut up. I can say whatever I want. And good for her. Go ahead and beat everyone over the head with that, as long as you're saying anti-war stuff. But so then... Why be coy? You got the greatest shield in the world. Your right flank is covered completely on who's a tough guy around here. So go ahead and be completely anti-war. Go ahead and undermine the rationale for the whole thing. We're waiting.
1: Well, speaking of waiting, we got one question that just came in real quick if you want to tackle it. Okay. But it is what your take is on – the effect of the UAE drawing back from Yemen and what that's going to have.
0: Well, I mean, it remains to be seen, but I'm pretty hopeful. I think that Nasser Arabi was saying that on the show last week that um, without the UAE, there's so much more pressure on the Saudis to figure out a way to back down here. And they're not just going to pack up and go. Probably they're going to have to have some kind of deal. But that just means that so hopefully look for some talks to come up soon. Maybe they will just try to ask all their friends in the media to just ignore the area for a month while they pull their guys out and just pretend the whole thing never happened or something. Uh, but, uh, you know, either way, whatever is fine. But they never had the ability to take the capital city this whole time. And so without the UAE, which really supported the land army, the only real land army in question there. Um, That means that all they can do, I guess, is continue airstrikes out of frustration, murder innocent people, continue to, you know, bomb food resources and commit war crimes as, you know, punishment for defying, um, you know, Saudi dictates. You know, everybody hates this guy, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince who uh, had the um, Khashoggi, um, the Washington Post writer, Uh, tortured and murdered Well, he's the one who started this war and he started it when he was 29 years old. He was the brand new defense minister and deputy crown prince and He went uh oh, I better do something macho so that people take me seriously around here. So he started a war You know, I don't know. I'm still waiting on word whether Karl Rove was advising him directly or what but uh, He went ahead and started a war and then it worked you know what? He was able to use the stature from the launch of that thing to have all his enemies arrested and declare himself crown prince. So now he doesn't even need to be the defense minister, too. He's not the deputy anymore. Now he's the crown prince under his father and had his cousin Bin Nayef arrested and imprisoned and out of his way. And so this is what the libertarians call public choice theory, right, where, as in fact, and Justin Romano calls it libertarian realism. All foreign policy is based on domestic policy, or domestic the politics. Economics of politics. Yeah, and so this guy had to do what he had to do to start the war, and that meant start a war genocide. It was labeled Operation Decisive Storm, and that was four and a half <laughs> years ago. And you know what? Too, there's an article by Robert Malley, who, you know, he's a mixed bag. But he was in the Obama years. Uh, he was in the Obama government at the time, and he wrote a piece in DefenseNews.com recently, or maybe it was Defense One. Might is have this been. This is a long, bloody,
1: indecisive, or indeterminate quote.
0: No, that's from the New York Times. Um, oh yeah. But so this is a this is a, a more recent piece, and he describes the. Decision making process in the Obama government as essentially non existent. It made it sound like it was sort of a mumbled conversation in a break room on a Saturday. They're like, well, kind of, well, what are we going to do here? I don't know, man. I don't know. And he said he went and tried to reproduce it and went and contacted the other people involved in the conversation and stuff. And nobody ever really remembered recommending that we go ahead and start this war. And some people thought that they remembered Obama said, okay, but only we'll help defend Saudi Arabia, but we won't help them actually attack Yemen. But somebody else didn't remember that. And somebody else said that, yeah, no, Obama did it. And then somebody else said... You know, I don't know if we ever really gave an outright go-ahead. And it's like this is your history of how you launched a war of genocide on behalf of a foreign country that the American people don't care about. Ask the American people; they really care what happens in Saudi Arabia, where they cut people's hands off for stealing, cut people's heads off for daring be a Shia, to for daring to protest and defy their government. You know, recently they. Executed a whole bunch of Shiite dissidents who had done nothing but protest, No terrorism whatsoever. Done nothing but peaceful protest. They were murdered. And their leader was beheaded. They were all beheaded. Pardon me. Their leader was beheaded and then his headless corpse was crucified. Right? Like false propaganda you would hear about North Korea. True. About Saudi Arabia. We're supposed to care so much about what happens to this government that we're willing to do all this for them. And then you ask the Obama people who launched a war of genocide on behalf of the new deputy crown prince of Saudi Arabia why they did it, and their answer is, I don't really remember very well exactly what we were thinking when we decided that, okay, we'll go ahead and do this. And when the whole war has been authorized by the U.S. all along, protected diplomatically by the U.S. all along, armed with bombs and guns the whole time by the U.S. all along, and with American mercenaries and spies and Air Force personnel to, you know, maintain, do all the care and feeding of the um, Saudi Air Force and uh, all the helping with the targeting and all the intelligence for the targeting, doing the refueling flights up until last fall. Anyway, when America finally sold the Saudis enough Boeing refueling tankers that now they can finally do it themselves, although that probably means with American crews on board those planes still helping that happen. And um, and with the American Navy helping to enforce the blockade in the Red Sea and in the, the uh, Gulf of Aden there. And so, yeah, there you go, man. It's an American war. This is what the Obama guys call leading from behind, right? Like in Libya. We'll pretend, essentially, that it's the British and the French taking the lead. But everybody knows that Uncle Sam is the one with all the money and all the guns and all the bombs and all the expertise. And so, that's exactly how it goes.
1: Uh, bringing bring back to the UAE, that's also not said that they're not going to stop funding HTS up there against uh, Syria trying to take back Idlib, including them in Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Good question. Well,
0: I don't know who is funding the Al-Nusra in Idlib province at this point. I mean, I know that the Syrian army tried to attack them, and then a Turkish-backed force attacked the Syrian army back and drove them back. So... That well, supposedly I, I is not Al-Qaeda, have, but it's a force, a separate militia backed by Turkey that is refusing to let the Syrians and the Russians finish the job there. So I don't know what Putin's position is. I guess the status quo is holding for now.
1: Yeah, I, I thought you had one, one of the Coburn brothers on there. I could be wrong, but I mean, you know, Assad and them were making some progress, right? I think they were like 14 miles in to Idlib that they were able to take back. I guess, like seventy, eighty thousand know, 80,000 backed factions?
0: Yeah, I'm not exactly sure.
1: Maybe sort of? Okay. Yeah, I mean,
0: I, generally speaking, yes, you're correct. But in detail, I don't know.
1: But Dang. I mean, it, I, um, I do
0: think, though, that, um, you know, America, you know, Donald Trump called off CIA support for the terrorists in June of 2017. I'll never forget the Washington Post headline was, In move sure to please Vladimir Putin, Trump Jesus cancels Christ. support for rebels in Syria. These are al-Qaeda terrorists. <laughs> and, and so they, they call it treason that he's ending a program of the highest treason you could possibly imagine. But anyway, so if that's the case... Well, and we all know why. He's surrounded by all these hawks, and he's too dumb to know his ass from his elbow. And so he can't tell you know, what should be done or when or or who's on whose side. He can't remember from day to day what the hell it all means. And he has no consistency to tell the hawks on this or that side that they have to shut up. He already made the other decision. And meanwhile, I mean, the, the Russians, the Syrians, and the Turks, they'll work this out without the Americans' involvement. The Turks problem is that they think if the Syrian army moves in there that that's going to strengthen the Kurds position. But I don't see why they need to worry about that because the Kurds the Syrian Kurds know that without a deal that allows the Assad government to reinstitute a monopoly on military force in their part of the country that they are wide open for attack by the Turks, literally, and they're also setting themselves up for Erdogan's argument that they must be attacked, because they are the monopoly on force in Syrian Kurdistan and not the Syrian state. But So, the solution is easy. The, the Kurds have already come to this realization. They're not stupid. They don't want to be wiped off the face of the earth by the Turkish military. They wouldn't stand a chance against it in a real, full fight. And so they know that they, they already have indicated, they already are talking and dealing and, and willing to let the Syrian army retake all of Syrian Kurdish land. So why that isn't good enough for Erdogan at this point, I don't know.
1: Don't they already have an advantage in Turkey because they like won that election, there was a revolution and people in prison like voted for the, the, the Kurds and everything? So, I mean, don't the Kurds have the advantage over that?
0: Don't the Kurds in Turkey have the advantage over Erdogan?
1: Uh, yeah, just like really. No, he's the, that they he's the dictator and
0: they're the. Yeah, no, I mean, they're in the parliament, but he's the he's the autocrat, the the semi elected uh, leader. So, I mean, yes, he just I mean, I think what he lost recently were local elections. Uh, I think the parliament thing was previously back a couple of years ago. Um, but no, the Kurds are in no dominant position inside Turkey's government of any kind. That's for sure. And I don't think they gotcha. have any say whatsoever about what, a, what Erdogan does to the Syrian Kurds, for example.
1: Gotcha. Um, just real quick. I think we're going to questions. I just want to know lastly, kind of how you feel about the whole Quincy Institute. Cause you had Andrew Basevich of it, John, and I thought that's a great back and forth, but I just kind of wanted to, uh, you know, see how uh, hopeful optimistic you are about it. I thought it was pretty cool, but, you know, there's always questions. So, Sure. Well, I actually
0: just wrote an article about it for Antiwar.com, so that'll be running tonight and tomorrow um, on Antiwar.com. And it's called Two and Three-Quarters Cheers for the Quincy Institute. Um, I want to call it two and five-eighths, but Eric said that people don't understand fractions well enough for that. So, <laughs> Two and three-quarters cheers. It is... Yes, um, odd that it's backed by Soros and Coke, Um, but I trust Andrew Bacevich and Trita Parsi and Eli Clifton that uh, they're no sellouts. Certainly not for a measly measly million bucks are they going to sell out. Um, Yeah,
1: that's like pennies.
0: Yeah, it's nothing. And Basevich told me that they brought their program to Coke and Soros and said, we want your money. And they agreed. And that was it. There were no strings. And he said he was realistic. They could come later and say, hey, now that you like our money, we'll, we're willing to finance you for the next couple of years, too, if only you'll turn evil on something or whatever. And that, that wouldn't work. And that he hopes they don't try that. And that's a realistic possibility. Um, but they're not going to let that happen. And I trust him on that. Um, so, I, I kind of only withhold a quarter of a cheer because of the brand name of Koch of, uh, and Soros to uh, different factions on the left and the right, especially, are particularly, um, you know, they're both hate figures, essentially, to certain factions. And yet, um, you know, I don't know. The only thing nice to say about George Soros I can think of is that he has helped to back um, legal pot initiatives. Through, since the yeah. 1990s. And it probably, if it wasn't for him, legal pot in California might have never happened in the first place there. The medical pot that started the whole thing off. So, you know, you got to give him credit for that. I mean, you're talking about a lot of people who did not go to jail who otherwise would have. Um, so that's really something to his credit. On the other hand, virtually anything else you can say about the guy is pretty bad. It's all. Supporting quote unquote democracy, which always ends up just meaning American supported factions, and usually right in Russia's old sphere of influence in a way that helps perpetuate the Cold War and put us all in danger, and is, you know, to be highly resented in a great many ways. And if you're any kind of libertarian or right winger, then you probably, um, you know, uh, resent a lot of his support for liberal and left wing groups in the United States on all kinds of various issues. Who knows? The Kochs are. Just like George Soros, Charles Koch is a hate figure to the left, uh, it's a some in the libertarian movement as well, I should say. Um, but uh, not you know, they're
1: right? Huh? I was joking, saying not Cato, they're right.
0: No, they backed, uh, you know, I think they've backed Cato all along, essentially. Um, it's yeah. you know, Rothbardian factions who hate them, but um, yeah, yeah, but anyway, um. You know, and they are conservative Republican businessmen, extremely wealthy oil men. I mean, you can say they're not arms dealers. They make carpet and tires and oil and stuff that people need in a free market, uh, more or less. <laughs> I should say a capitalist type system such as it is. Um, but they used to be much more ideologically uh, libertarian uh, than they are now. But I, it's, it's legitimate that they're anti-war. I mean... Um, as I say in my article, as a full disclosure, that antiwar.com founders Eric Garris and Justin Romando used to work for Charles Koch in 1979 and 80, protesting the reinstitution of draft registration. And he was financing a right libertarian anti-draft movement in the country. And Eric Garris and Justin Romando were running it for him. I've never worked for a Koch backed group, but they do back a lot of groups in our libertarian movement uh, for good or for ill. I mean when they're trying to help um, when Cato's trying to help George W. Bush put all the social Security money in the stock market bubble, I mean, holy crap, can you imagine if that had been allowed to happen? The catastrophe there, the bubble that popped in '8, that same one. Uh, my God. Um, but on the other hand, they back all of our greatest heroes in their foreign policy department. Doug Bandow and Ted Carpenter and John Glazer, and on and on and on, a bunch of really great people there. Um, they back Reason, which is 95% good. Even if you hate them, you got to admit they're 95% good. Um, and uh, they back the Institute for Justice, which sues on behalf of the little guy to protect them from the state daily, you know, who are, do absolutely heroic work. And so, you know, I don't mean that all this work that's done all then gets to reflect just positively like a halo on Charles Koch, but it is true. I mean, I do give him credit for he pays the salaries of a lot of our best guys, man. It's just a fact. And um and that and he's always been like this. I mean the re- I know people who know him essentially. Like I say, Eric Garris, the boss at antiwar.com, used to work with this guy on a daily basis. And they were anarchists. They were Rothbardian anarchists. I think, you know, splitting with Rothbard personally probably hurt that a little bit. Um and plus again, they're very rich business interests, so that kind of demands conservatism rather than libertarianism, doesn't it? Um once you got that much money. But uh anyway, I you know, for I think we can just take it for what it's worth that I'm going on way too long about this. I think we can take it for what it's worth <laughs> that Soros and Coke, they are who they are, and I don't think anybody has to be too cynical about um them one way or the other, right? I mean, I think it's legitimate that both of them consider the current policy to be too much. And so they are willing to back this group. But now who's the group? The group is run by Trita Parsi and Andrew Basevich, as you mentioned, I interviewed him about this, and Eli Clifton. And these three guys are heroes. Now, there's another reason, though, that I only give them two and three quarters. Cheers, is because none of them are libertarians. None of them are, you know, pure Ron Paulian non interventionists. Um, Basevich is a conservative, and Trita Parsi and Eli Clifton are both progressives. Um, although I don't, I don't guess I've ever really gotten into Eli Clifton's politics very much, but I'm fairly certain that that's correct. Um, and then the other two people that I don't really know, but one of them's a professor who. Columbia, but who seems pretty dang anti-interventionist from what I've seen, um, delib- You know, explicitly renouncing the doctrine of American military dominance on the planet. In other words, undoing all of America's national security strategy since the end of the Cold War, which is pretty dang good, and also calls into question our alliance with Israel. Quote-unquote alliance. Um, and <laughs> then there's this lady named um, Suzanne... I'm sorry, something... Who is great on Korea? Not only is she good on peace with Korea, she's been working with former Secretary of Defense William Perry on organizing unofficial talks with the North Koreans and building confidence and relationships. You know, kind of in the background as Moon and Trump are working on peace with Kim. So, in other words, absolutely heroic work. Um, possibly saving hundreds of thousands or millions of lives from the opposite of that, if if it really helps to work. So. Um, I don't know those last two, but the first three I've interviewed over and over and over and over again on my show over the years, and they're all really great. So, no, But none of them, I don't think, are total abolitionists of U.S. foreign policy the way that we are at Antiwar.com, but I don't really care about that. I don't think that they can be compromised by Coke or Soros. I don't think that those men are really even trying to influence them as much as just support what they're already doing. And what they're already doing, I don't know exactly the specifics, but I'm going to go ahead and trust that it's going to be good enough for me, by far. You know, As you heard on that show, Basavich and I have disagreed about Asia for years. We've talked about Asia for years, and he just can't imagine a situation where America leaves Japan and Korea and just our, washes our hand of it and come back home, and then just wait and see what happens. He thinks that... Japan and South Korea would rearm so much so fast and put China on edge, and China would arm up against them, and things can get real ugly real fast. And that America's the boy, the Dutch boy with his finger in the dike holding the thing back. Now, I don't necessarily buy that, but that goes to show he's not a total non interventionist, but he is smart really smart compared to the rest of these chumps. And that was the way he phrased it quit being stupid. Quit doing things like try to dominate the entire Middle East that we don't need to dominate at all and stick to important things like preventing Japan and China from going back to war, which I don't think we need a military presence over there to do that, but he does. But anyway, so that to me, though, is within the margin. This is a guy who I run probably, you know, 49 out of 50 of his articles for Antiwar.com that he writes for Tom Dispatch, you know, I republish at Antiwar.com. I can't really think of a time I've ever rejected one of his, but maybe I have, you know, once or twice, probably over China or maybe over global warming or something. But this is a guy who's (laughs) essentially 99% good. So what the hell do I care, man? That's absolutely good enough for me. And we need their help and we need their presence as essentially pretty moderate centrist people who are very, very anti-war, you know, who are not, you know, none of them are, are far left or far right at all. They're their beliefs could essentially fit within the spectrum of the Republican and democratic parties. Um, and they're saying that it doesn't have to be this way, which is absolutely right.
1: Teamwork makes the dream work, man. Yeah, dude. Totally. No, I I'm, I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm hopeful. And by the way, what you just said, it really, uh, doesn't have to be this way, which, uh, I'm all in favor for that being the uh, title of the upcoming book. But uh, that's going to be up to you. But any last words about the book and the fundraiser and all that good stuff and anything else we want to let the good people know about? Well, I guess
0: just, you know, um, first of all, there's more than 5000 interviews now over at the on the interview feed and scotthorton.org slash interviews. Um, So if people want to check those out, I got a zillion of them for you and I'm still recording them all the time. Um, I'm on Sunday mornings in L.A., on uh, kpfk 90.7 at uh, eight thirty. uh now that justin is dead i'm the head writer at antiwar.com i've been the editorial director for a few years now i guess pretty much but uh, i'm the editorial director now the head writer again or for the first time now at antiwar.com uh so that's uh, original.antiwar.com slash scott and then um like I say, Horton.org for the show. Libertarian Institute for my institute. Got some great podcasts there and some good writers and some fun stuff on the blog going on and whatever, libertarianinstitute.org. And then, yeah, you know, essentially the book, I'll say about the book, the fundraiser, it's scotthorton.org slash donate. And basically the deal is that um, I'm trying to write a book that's going to be about Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Syria, Iraq War Two, Iraq War Three. Oh, I left off in the beginning from Carter through Bill Clinton. So the Iranian revolution, the Iran-Iraq war, Iraq war one, Iraq war one and a half, the rise of Al-Qaeda against us and all that. Then Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Syria, Iraq war one and two, down into Mali and Nigeria and Niger and Tunisia and the rest in, in Western and Northern Africa. And that'll be sort of the brief part at the end, I guess. But um so, it's going to be about the whole 21st century terror war, really starting with 79 it is chapter one. You know, Carter through Clinton is chapter one, just like in Fool's Errand, only with more parts to it. And then I'm going to try to cover them all. And then each chapter, I hope, will be brief enough but meaningful enough that you'll get it, but without completely beating you over the head and trying to make you learn a million things about each war that you can't, you know, do it all. Um, You know, I'm trying to split that difference, have everything you need in there, but nothing more than that, and then see if I can put out a book about the entire terror war, debunking it all, showing that anyone who said in 01 that we don't have to do this, that it doesn't have to be this way, they were right. Look at what's happened. The whole time it's been nothing but a catastrophe, none of it justified, and and none of the reasons for it true the whole damn time either, and um, so hopefully... By the time people are done with the book, they will know that they are completely armed, completely inoculated against the arguments of the war party and and armed up with their own arguments against it and and armed up with a book that they could pass to anybody they know, anybody they care about or anybody they're fighting with or whoever it is, and just say, "Look, man, they're congressmen. look, there's this new book out that just shows that this whole thing is just bankrupt. It doesn't have to be this way. that's it and um And it should stand up. I mean, I want it for critics to have to suck it, that they can't do nothing except try to ignore it because they can't argue with my position that this is all Jimmy Carter's fault and everybody knows that. And once you're done reading it, you can't deny it. And yeah, it's kind of ironic that the most peaceful of all the presidents of my lifetime is the one who's really the evil Sith master who put all of this stuff into motion. When he never needed to do so at all.
1: He's the quiet Palpatine figure.
0: Or Palpatine's original master back before him, you know? Yeah. Anyway.
1: Bad deal. Beautiful. I think that's a great way to uh, sign off.
0: All right. Well, hey, thanks for doing this, man.
1: Got to get some things off my chest. (laughs) I got a vent.
0: All right, guys. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Oh, scotthorton.org slash donate was that URL in case anyone forgot. All right, good. Thanks. Oops. (laughs)